Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guests this week are Jessica St. Clair and Dan O'Brien. Jessica is a comedy writer and performer. Alongside her real-life best pal, Lennon Parham, she created and starred in Playing House, a really great sitcom that aired for three seasons on USA. Dan O'Brien is her husband of 15 years. He works as a poet and playwright. He's a former Guggenheim fellow whose work has been performed off-Broadway and in London. A few years back, Jessica discovered a lump in her breast. Didn't take long for doctors to diagnose her with breast cancer, and she very quickly started aggressive treatment. Then, just as she was starting to recover, doctors diagnosed Dan with stage 4 colon cancer that had spread to his liver. I should mention that just before Jessica was diagnosed, the two had had a child together. You'll hear more about their story in my interview with them, but needless to say, it was an intense and frightening time. And as they recovered, that time inspired their work. For Jessica, cancer became a central plotline in the third season of Playing House. For Dan, it became a book. In Our Cancers, Dan uses poetry to chronicle the year and a half he and Jessica spent going to doctors, getting treatment, raising their child. It's really beautiful. As you might have guessed, there's a lot of talk about cancer in this interview, stuff about body parts and exams and all the pain and scariness that come with all that. So if that is a sensitive subject for you, we we wanted to let you know. Okay, with all that out of the way, my interview with Jessica St. Clair and Dan O'Brien. Dan and Jessica, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, a lot of big smiles right now. Don't worry, we'll get to cancer in a minute. Um, I, the two of you have been together a long time. Can you tell me how you met? Yeah, we, uh, we were in the same comedy improv group in college, Middlebury College. Do with was, Jason Manzukis. Jason Manzukis. Oh, wonderful comedy actor. And Rodney Rothman, who just won an Emmy for uh, Spider. Spider-Man. One of those Spider-Man, of those Spider-Man movies, movies into the multiverse. Um, but yes, we. I came, I was a younger, I was freshman and I auditioned and I, um, Jason thinks I had pleated jeans on, but I don't like a, like a light wash. He, he remembers it as like a pleated acid wash jean. I don't. And tree torts. I think that's pretty accurate. That sounds pretty accurate <laughs> to me. I mean, that's on trend, Jessica. I know, right now. That was was 94. That was 95. 94, 95. 95, yeah. And that was like comedy catnip. You know, I had like Hugh Grant's haircut from Four Weddings and a Funeral, (laughs) and I just rolled in um, with an ironic T-shirt. And then the first scene we improvised together, this is true, I I asked her to marry me. That's that's how desperate and inappropriate I was. (laughs) And... uh, but it worked. It only took another 11 years, but we eventually <laughs> eventually got hitched. So yeah, we've known each we've known each other since I was 18 and then been together since I was 20. So that it's yeah, it's a very long time. 
<laughs> the two of you were doing improv in college. Did you have the idea that you wanted to be in arts and entertainment professionally? Yes. Dan's known he was going to be a, a writer since he was like, you know, I always picture Dan's childhood in like black and white, you know, like he's like a, a Dickensian like boy playing, <laughs> playing with like a, a wooden hoop and yeah. like, scri- you know, writing, scribbling down things. <laughs> it's it's all daguerreotypes. Isn't that right? <laughs> yeah. In in Westchester County in the, in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> but yeah, you knew since what I age? did. I did. I mean, I always... You know, I always enjoyed writing, writing stories. It wasn't until I got to college that I discovered performing to whatever degree I was I was good at it. But it's it's what sort of took me from being an aspiring novelist or poet to being a playwright, which is what I ended up doing primarily for the first 15 years of my uh, career. But in college, I was really serious about writing a comedy, too. I mean, I, I was... If you asked me when I was 21, I would say, yeah, I want to go into comedy. I want to be doing what Jessica's doing or, or what Jason Manzoukas is doing. And then once I graduated college and I, and I had to find, you know, jobs to, to feed myself, you know, writing was just the most important thing. And so the acting kind of faded away. But I could live vicariously through what Jessica was doing, which I, I just loved. It was so valuable just to my mental health to be able to go – after writing alone all day in New York, when we lived in New York, I could go to the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and see Jessica's shows and feel like I was part of that world. Well, you could smell it, too. And you could smell it. it was underneath the Gristidi's supermarket. And sometimes <laughs> we would have, like, blood from the butcher's drip on our forehead. I was there. Did that happen often? Or was that a... Because I remember one night where a it lot did. of blood came through the ceiling. Yes. Yeah, it was tough. That was a tough night. A lot of stories about that UCB involved dripping. (laughs) There's a lot of stories about things dripping into the theater. So many things. Just exudations of moisture and dampness. Because it was under, yeah, it was underneath. Yeah, there was always also like a dead animal in the walls. Like we always knew there was something like in there that had rotted. And we were like, and, and I just would be terrified that it would be one of the interns or me that would have to go find out what it is. So we never solved that mystery, but um, but yeah, Dan and I, you know, it's funny because Dan was really the pioneer of like this, you know, bohemian life. Like I thought, you know, I was from New Jersey and from an Irish Catholic family and you were just supposed to get like a normal job. So, you know, it was Dan was really my gateway drug. And once I... I was and am a few years older than her. So I was a couple years post-college you know, trying to make a career in in the arts. And so, yeah, so that's the way in which I was a, a gateway. Yeah. And then, but he gave me the courage really to do it, um, to, to tell my parents that I was going to be doing that. And that conversation went, I was with my, uh, one of my best friends, Cree, who had come out to his parents in college. And he said that conversation was as much like a coming out conversation that he'd ever heard. Because my parents were just like, who did this to you? Like, what are you, are you going to dress differently? Like, what does this mean? What are we going to tell people? You want to be an actor? You know, it was like the worst thing you could possibly tell somebody. Um, where do we go wrong? There was a lot of that. And um, they did blame me. And they said, this is all Dan's fault. Yeah. And um, that took, that took several years to recover from. Yeah. But they came around. They did. And um, just one Christmas, you got a, you got a box <laughs> and you opened it up and there was a, 
beret and a turtleneck in there <laughs> and you knew they had accepted you. <laughs> Seriously. When I when I did um Conan, I remember saying to him like quite truly that he was thank God he was on the air because I think he was like the only Irish person my parents could point to that had like made it. <laughs> like they were like we don't we are not show people. Do you know what I mean? No one wants to see our faces on camera. You know ever we only have like a good 10 to 15 years in us. And then it's like a swift decline. So physically. So um, <laughs> so I'm on, as far as I know, I'm living on borrowed time. <laughs> Jessica, you, you were part of a relatively small group of women improvising at the UCB at the time. And it seems like that relatively small group of women are still buddies and are still working together. I mean, Lennon Parham, with whom you created Playing House, was one of them. June Diane Raphael, who you podcast with now, was one of them. Were you ever self-conscious about pushing yourself into what was, you know, despite the presence of Amy Poehler, a pretty masculinized space? Well, yeah, you know, it's funny because when I joined the UCB, there was like, God, it felt like 60 people. That was that small. They didn't even have a theater yet. They were just getting their new theater. And so there were so few women that there is usually only one or two on a team. You know, we had these Herald teams that were like, I don't know, 10 people, eight to 10 people. So what what June and I and Danielle and Casey, who have sesh that that wildly popular podcast, like what we all talk about now, because those are all my best friends. We saw each other as competition, I think, in the very beginning, simply because you'd be like, oh, there's only one other girl or there's only one spot for a girl. Um, and that was a real shame. It was a big regret of mine. If I could go back, you know, I didn't start working with Len until I was in my 30s out in uh, L.A., and I kind of I wonder if that hadn't been the case, like how powerful we could have been together. But at the same time, we also had Amy Poehler as our like mentor. And I did watch how she and Tina Fey and Rachel Dratch, how they all kind of were very close. Maya Rudolph, close friends. And they also teamed up like my my night to intern and clean the bathroom was when Dratch and Faye had their sketch show that really was they did right before Tina got on SNL. And I watched how much they enjoyed the out of each other. And I thought, God, I can't wait to have a woman to write stuff that makes specifically me as a woman laugh. And that's what I found when I when I found Lennon. And that was like a glorious thing. Now, the fact that we are all such close girlfriends is just such it's the best thing about being in Los Angeles for me. It's probably the only thing that would keep me there. You know. Do you think it's a choice you made to look at that those relationships differently at some point in your life? Oh, yeah, I do think so. I think I fell so madly in love with them that it became like their good thing was my good thing that happened to me. And I I was just, it was such a revelation that I could like just be really happy for my friends. And I don't feel that competition. I, and it re I really don't feel it. I also think we were aging, you know, we were getting out of that kind of like desperate feeling of, 
you know, oh God, what if it doesn't, what if it doesn't happen for me? I think now we know there is no happening for anybody. <laughs> it's just one, it's one long nervous, uh, what's the next thing going to be, but we're always stronger when we're together and we write for each other, which is really, which is really nice. And so, um, so yeah, I do think it was like, just because I fell in love with them, I realized like, oh, I can I can't want anything but good for them to happen. I can't want for anything but good to happen for these people. Do you still find yourself showing up in the lobby of an audition and June Diane Raphael or <laughs> I mean, Daniel I, Schneider or whatever is is sitting there? No, you know what's great now is like, listen, we still have to audition, okay? But now it's all from our living rooms. But the best thing about June and I is that when June turns down a role, they come to me <laughs> and and vice versa. And so I always know, like one time June couldn't make it. Do you remember um, Dog Days? She like mm-hmm. got a, a a role that was taking her out of town. And so they called me like the night before. And when I showed up, they were trying to pretend like I had just gotten the part. But I was like, oh, no, I know we're exactly the same size. Like, <laughs> so, so we, um, yeah, it's nice to have a backup, like a body double. I mean, once I uh, was riding in a van with Gillian Jacobs from uh, from Community and Love and, and other things. And yeah. she had just, she she had brown hair. Yes, and, and I was like, oh, you're usually, usually you're blonde. What's, uh, what's going on? And she said, oh, I booked a part in a movie where the lead is blonde. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, show business is different for women. <laughs> oh, yes. You can never have more than one. Yes. Never have more than one blonde. You have to. No, 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 no. What about the time you had to dye your hair brown for an allergy medication? commercial oh yeah i had because they, they they felt that to look sad and and stricken with allergies she needed to be a brunette you couldn't be blunt but then they found my voice so grating that they had somebody else come in and and mouth you know and do the voice for yeah. me so but i was like really okay um and what was even sadder is i was auditioning for another commercial at the time and i was like wait what is this zyrtec commercial i did this commercial and they're like it's just for your voice honey i was like well that's fair i do have a rough voice <laughs> i apologize to your it's listeners right now it's a distinctive voice yeah dan you had picked the one career path or two of the very few career paths <laughs> with less promise um yes, than yes. becoming an actor or comedy right. performer <laughs> yes you you had decided to become a playwright and poet yeah, uh, both of them. You doubled down, mm-hmm. um, and you know. And I'll say, I I doubled down when I moved to LA. I had been writing plays primarily for about ten years, and there was something about the move to LA that made me want to or feel I needed to write poetry. Part of it, part of it, I think, was just just a perverse enjoyment of telling people at parties. At parties in LA, there would often be Jessica's friends who were in TV and film, and they'd say, well, "What do you do?" And I, sometimes I'd leave out the playwriting, and I'd say, "Oh, I'm a poet," just to see the the look of the sort of mix of like of uh, feeling sorry for me, horror, but also admiring me. It was yeah. a strange mix of, of of feelings that I would see. 
but no, it did. It, it developed with with when we moved to LA that I just um, I started to write more poetry, and it was for sure. It's a step backwards in terms of possible uh, <laughs> audience or readers. But see, I like it because it makes me sound smart. <laughs> you know, depends on how you look at it. <laughs> Dan, were you working in New York when you were out of college in those early years? I was, yeah. I mean, I had, I went to, I had a about three years where I was. I had fellowships and grants where I could write primarily. I spent a year in Ireland uh, traveling and acting a little bit and and writing. And then I went to grad school at Brown University to study writing. So it wasn't until I got to New York at 25 that I suddenly really had to find a way to earn a living. And so I taught a little bit here and there, creative writing, and uh, worked at a a bank from 5 p.m. to 4 a.m. every night for stressed out investment bankers. You and Jason both made Jason did too, yeah. You both made PowerPoint presentations for bankers, which is so weird. That was their job and we yeah. would use like the fax machine. We right. would like you guys you would but it was, or it was, you would steal reams of paper. Yeah, it was I mean it was like unlimited laser printing. I mean that's that's a great unlimited. That's a great thing for a playwright in the 90s. I mean we weren't sending PDFs around, you know, we we actually needed printers. So there were perks, and often you didn't have much to do. You just had to be there till till three or four a.m. You and, know, and listen to some of their like personal problems. But other than that, Jason right. used to turn out all the lights in the in the studio and sleep on the floor, so that when people came by, they'd be like, "Oh, there's nobody here to do my my presentation." <laughs> <laughs> so weird. We've got more of my interview with Jessica St. Clair and Dan O'Brien. After the break, we'll talk about how Jessica and Dan's experience with cancer affected their child. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, with no limit on how much you can earn. It's amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So, when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash match. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Jessica St. Clair and Dan O'Brien. Jessica is a comedy actor and writer, star of the NBC show Best Friends Forever and the wonderful USA show Playing House. Her husband, Dan, is a playwright and poet. He recently published a book of poems called Our Cancers. In it, he recounts the time he and Jessica both overcame that disease. Let's get back to the conversation. You are both cancer survivors. Jessica, you were diagnosed with cancer first. Yeah. How old was your kid when you were diagnosed? She was not yet two. So she, I got my double mastectomy the day of her second birthday. Yeah. Which was, which was crazy too. You know, it just randomly happened to be that day. But I also felt like that was a really important thing because I was being given a whole new life, you know, after that to be able to be alive with her. When you were diagnosed, was it because something came up in a in a routine check or you suspected something or 
Yeah, no, I, um, so my childhood best friend, Kelly had passed away before BB, before I got pregnant with BB. And, you know, I basically felt like I had heard from her a couple times, you know, from, from the beyond. Okay. And, and Irish Catholic people, we talk to dead people all the time. So it's not like that big of a deal. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed, but they'll be like, well, just ask your grandfather for help. Like he's been dead for, you know, 40 years. But we were on, I had just wrapped season two of editing of Playing House, and we had decided to go to this um, rented house, like a VRBO or something in Laguna Beach. And we were there, and it was a real show of a of a VRBO. It had basically like a black fly infestation happened while we were there. And we had to leave a day early, a day or two early. And I was having these dreams where my best friend was telling me, screaming something at me. And I didn't know what it was. And as we were driving back, I said to Dan, hey, have you heard from Kelly? Because Dan also talks to dead people. And I was like, hey, have you heard from Kelly? Because she's really squawking at me. And he's like, no, I haven't. And I said, gosh, I wonder if she's trying to warn me about something about playing house or is it going to get canceled or I don't know. And then the next morning I was uh, eating Cheerios with my daughter and I wasn't wearing a bra as, as moms like to do. We like to rip our bras off the moment we get home anything attractive on our bodies we like to change into something unattractive and that was I was in one of those outfits and I do not know why I felt my own boob while I was at the table but they were so small because after breastfeeding they were just like deflated socks and I felt like a lump and I was like oh my god and I knew the moment I felt it I knew this is cancerous I knew it and because I knew that was what Kelly was trying to get to me about. And I, Dan came downstairs and he remembers the moment. And I told him I found, I found a lump and he backed out of the room. He was like, no, 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 no. Cause I think he knew too. Like this was bad news, which is crazy. Cause I had no reason to believe that, you know, I didn't know of anyone in my family who had breast cancer and I was under 40. So it, the chances of it being cancerous were very unlikely like ninety nine percent chance I was supposed to. And Jessica is the farthest thing from a hypochondriac. I, I'm very. I am a hypochondriac. I'm so. licking lampposts like <laughs> left and right. You know. So yeah, I think her certainty or the the you know extreme nature of her fear probably um, uh, spooked me that morning. And also, you know, I mentioned it in my poetry collection, but it was the first. I mean, it was the anniversary of nine eleven which was already a weird day for us as we uh, lived near the World Trade Center. And, uh, you know, there, there's some possibility that breathing all that dust may have affected both of our cancers. So there was something just uncanny about about the experience, about that morning especially. Yeah, sometimes when you're a writer, you would like for life to be less on the nose. And this was really one of those on the nose experiences. <laughs> But yeah, then I went and I uh, went right to my OBGYN who was had gotten BB out of me, who was a 10 pound baby. And that so she was really good at her job. And she said, you know, I don't want you to wait. I think you should go over to this woman, Dr. Memzik, Leslie Memzik, who had left Cedars to uh, open her own breast clinic, the Bedford Breast Center, because she felt that the the level of care women were getting at, you know, at a big hospital was not good enough and not fast enough. And it turns out she was right because 
you know, my my cancer was growing so fast. Had I waited a month or two months, it, it could have been too late. So, yeah. And then they, they took a sample, a biopsy of it. But I was like, oh, it's cancer. All right. Like, I can tell you, you don't have to send it to the lab. She's like, OK, psycho. And then Lennon and I had to go and co-host the Today Show with <laughs> Kathy Lee and Hoda. OK, you think Lennon might have said to me, hey, I don't know if this is the best thing for us to be doing. I was like, Lennon, it's fine. OK, we're just going to go co-host. The, it's fine. We're going to fly to New York gonna, this weekend and co-host. The we're going to fly to New York. It's going to be great. Well, it wasn't great. I was out of my damn mind. Kathy Lee and Hoda were all over the place. They gave us apple juice instead of wine. I could have used the wine. It was a show. We were being told we were talking too much. It was just like nobody had a plan. It was horrible. And several times, Kathy had to go, I would just stare into the camera. Like I'd never been on camera before in my life. And she'd go, it's your line. And I'm like, okay, Kathy, like give me a minute. So. Well, then Jessica went home to LA and I had to stay in New York for auditions for a play of mine. Uh, And that's how I received the news that the biopsy was uh, cancerous was in the middle of some poor actor's audition. I get a little text that says it is cancer, and no, no, no ramp up. Also, by the way, he begged me to come back home with me to New York, and I was like, no way, I'm going to be fine. Like that was that was not a good decision. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't a good decision. But then, you know, Lennon was with me when I uh, officially got the diagnosis when I drove in. Uh, Pouring rain in Los Angeles. Again, like I was in a movie, you know, ridiculous. Sobbing as I drive to Beverly Hills. And then I, you know, was alone getting all of this terrifying news. And then Lennon showed up and I did not tell Lennon to come either. I told her, please don't try to drive here in the rush hour traffic. And she was like, of course I'm going to come. But she didn't tell me she was going to come. She just showed up. And then it became the three of us. It was me, Lennon, and Dan. And people couldn't figure out because at first they thought Lennon and I were a couple. And we were getting like the limousine treatment because we were this adorable couple with with two (laughs) girls. We kept talking about our girls and our daughters. And I said... I said to the to the doctor, she said, okay, so, you know, here are the options. And I was like, okay, here's the deal. Like, I need to stay alive for my daughter. Like, I will do anything. I don't care how much it hurts. I don't care. I don't care what it does to me. Just keep me alive. So what would you do? What's the most aggressive thing you can do? And she said, well, I would get a double mastectomy. And I said, great, let's do it tomorrow. And she was like, well, no, it's going to take a month at least to say, you got to choose a, I go, who do you like? plastic surgeon. Who do you like? She's like, well, I work with it. I go, she sounds great. Let's do it. And she looked at Lennon and Lennon was like, oh no, she's serious. Like, and I said, watch, I will have my boobs off me faster than any woman you've ever had in this, in this office. And I did. Yeah. Two weeks later, right? Two weeks. Oh yeah. Week and a half later. I'm in, I'm out. I want to play a scene from Playing House, which is the show that you, Jessica, co-created and co-starred in with Lennon Parham. And in the last season of the show, cancer became a storyline. And just as in, you know, a previous season of the show, a a baby had become a storyline. These were things that were happening in your lives. And this is a scene that I think really (laughs) exemplifies the tone of the show. And it's like the scene 
basically the scene where you find out you you might have cancer. Um, Dr. Erickson, can you um, check this? Sure. What is it? What's going on? Uh, it's probably nothing. I just haven't had an exam, so we don't have a baseline. Oh, is it a lump? Because I have very lumpy boobs. Not to brag, but in eighth grade, Josh Rosenfarb called me Lumpelstiltskin. Can you feel that? Yeah. Why are you making that face? Is it bad? No, it's probably nothing. I mean, at your age, I mean, really, probably nothing. But, um, yeah, we are going to have to run some tests just to make sure. So Lumpelstiltskin is the moment, obviously, that's, <laughs> that stands out in that scene. <laughs> and, you know, like... One of the things about Playing House, which was a show that I really loved, um, oh, is that it was the the very rare light television show with a lot of real relationships and real jokes. Oh, um, that you know, I think a lot of a lot of breezy television achieves its breeziness by being dumb. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> yeah. not to put too like it's fine for some things to be dumb. I'm like like that can be nice, you know, yes, to just yes. watch something and and playing house. I think is is maybe the only TV show I, that I've seen that's that's achieved that level of lightness while having so many real feelings and jokes. And like this is ultimate level difficulty setting that you're going to main. Like it's one thing to maintain that tone with you know, single parenthood being a theme. It's another thing to maintain that tone with cancer being the theme. Yeah. And so you're doing lighthearted comedy <laughs> about this. Like, damn, yeah. no offense, but your cancer fits a lot better into uh, poetry yes. and memoir theater. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, but you know, right away, funny things were happening. And that's the truth between the three of us. Like, I mean, I literally, you couldn't pay me enough money to go back and be in that moment again. But, you know, I very quickly, I would think within 30 minutes of being diagnosed, I was like, well, we got to write about this. Because like, I, I the first funny thing that happened was, you know, I've always been very, very narcissistic about my nipples. I have perfect, they're perfect. Now, listen, and it's no offense to the salad plates out there, you know, the dinner plate size nipples out there, because we we come in all shapes and sizes, but I don't have a lot of calling cards, but one is I have these perfect nipples that are like the size of a, you know, like a quarter and like, like, a, like an eraser head, you know, it's just beautiful. And so Lennon is in there with me, and now I'm like, everybody thinks that we're a lesbian couple, and I don't want to necessarily not tell them that we aren't, because I think we're getting, like, the red carpet treatment because of it. And then she takes out a, a, a pamphlet, and it and it basically my doctor had pioneered the nipple-sparing mastectomy where you can keep your nipple. And she goes, hey. <laughs> she goes, good news. <laughs> and I said, what? And she goes, looks like you're going to get to keep those special nips you're always bragging about. And I'm like, that is good news. <laughs> and you know what else I said to her? We put it in the pilot. I said, how am I the one with cancer? I'm like, you're the one who drinks shorty Cokes and has like too many Snickers every day. I'm like, you should be the one with cancer. She's like, oh my God, that is so hurtful. And also I was like, what are you wearing? She's like, this, I, I got this sweatshirt for free. I was like, it's no wonder everybody. Anyway, so... 
Yeah, things were funny even though they were horrible. And I yeah, think or so- what about I mean this was a scene in the in the show too was when J- uh, Lennon you Lennon and me were picking out my boobs. The replacement boobs, the artificial the implants. And I mean I was just incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. Doing that in general in front of doctors, all women <laughs> doctors and you you're meant to like pick up the, you know, they, they bring out a suitcase. The merchandise. A velvet-lined, I remember is it a velvet-lined suitcase. My doctor has now said, I've never, like, opened a suitcase, like, deal or no deal. Like, that's never <laughs> been something. I'm like, but I remember it as a black velvet-lined suitcase, and they had different. You know, like, there was, I remember there was a parking lot in a 70s sedan. They opened the trunk, and there were some Pelican cases in there. That's funny. And they asked what I wanted. She's like, Jessica, no. But they do. They have all of the three types of implants you could put in. And you have to feel your own breast and then feel the implant and decide which one feels the most like you. And I'm like, I was panicked. I'm like, how can I make this decision, this split second decision? This thing's going to be in my, my body forever. And so I said, Dan, could I get a second opinion? Can you get your hands on it? And he was just like, I don't want to be doing this. This is so horrible. And so, like, I remember you poking the side of it, but you say that's <laughs> not what you did. But you really pretty quickly. I, I think I, I think I held it. <laughs> but I think, I think Lennon went first. That's my recollection. I think Lennon broke the ice. I thought I fired you. I thought I said you're fired. Lennon, get in here. Or or did she even say, could I get it? Could I get my hands on it? But regardless, both Dan and I said, Lennon, you choose. <laughs> and I don't you if you don't know Lennon well, you just she is like an old Southern witch. There's something about her that is so calming, right, Dan? She's yeah. a calming energy. Yeah. And it's like when when <laughs> hits the fan, you want Lennon to make that call, right? And so Lennon, I mean, she felt each one, and we joke, we always said like a like a like a sommelier would like sample a wine, and she just said it's number two. She was like, there was no, and I said, put it in. So everyone had never seen this type of a triad before. It was so weird. Yeah. Lennon did most of the talking, she did all of the writing. She made a binder that said, cancer colon, you want to roll with this. And it had all sorts of manners of tabs. She went to paper source. She had a special pens for leaflets, you know, sleeves. She had a lot of sleeves. But I mean, I just felt like if I had Dan and, you know, I had Dan to talk about all the serious, you know, because I always knew I wanted a poet in my life because when like you get to like life and death stuff, that's who you want, you know, because they're not afraid of the dark. And that was so important to me that I could say my deepest and darkest thoughts to Dan and he wouldn't tell me to be positive or to shut up. Um, He just let me be scared and listen. That was such a gift. And then I had Lennon and her uh, paper source uh, tabs. You know, it's like, what else, what else could a girl ask for? I always say, do not go into those plastic surgery appointments alone. Go with your husband and your best friend. Dan, there's a boob moment in one of the poems in your new book. Is there? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah, probably more than more than one. But what to my boobs? Uh, <laughs> a bunch of well, there's a few. I hope they're my boobs. Well, there's one that's I think actually meant to be a kind of humorous poem. It's it's the night before our wedding. It was a memory of the night before our wedding, 
when we were <laughs> returning to Jessica's parents' house, where all, all Jessica's parents' friends were, were partying. And we threw open the front door, and Jessica's shirt just magically fell open. I had a halter top on, and because I had these small boobs, I didn't have to wear a bra, and I went, we're here, and then topless in front of my childhood best friend's father, who then said, it's not like I haven't seen it before. So awkward, right? Because he knew us when we were babies. And I was like, this is just horrible. Yeah. But I just thought, what better way to, you know, say farewell to your childhood than to than to expose yourself <laughs> to your parents and their friends, you know, to announce your your womanhood. What it made me think of that you wrote about your wife's breasts in the context of, you know, her having had cancer and you having had cancer was that we have this intense physical intimacy with our partner's bodies, you know, whether it's in a romantic context or just in a, you know, first woke up in the morning context, whatever, right? But cancer and cancer treatment are like a level of physical intimacy, like intimacy in relationship with the body that are far beyond that. And, you know, boobs are silly and funny, (laughs) but, you know, Jessica had to have a surgery where hers were cut off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think both of us in different ways, I mean, of course she, her cancer happened to involve uh, her primary sexual attributes uh, and mine was my, my colon, but it was a similar type of thing where, you know, the, the core of my body was affected, was, was, was opened up, was radically changed in order to, to hopefully um, save my life. And yeah, you know, it's, it's been years of us processing that development, you know, losing the purely erotic potential of your body when you're young. Uh, Hopefully you don't lose that entirely, but it's been complicated um, vastly because suddenly, especially if something like this happens to you relatively young, you know, suddenly you you recognize to a shocking degree just how uh, perishable and changeable and uncontrollable our bodies are. But yeah, I think, you know, breast cancer and the breast, of course, you can't help but think, as, thinking as a poet, you can't help but think about love and affection. And many of the, the poems in, in the collection, which I just call Our Cancers, because it's, you know, the first part is about me writing about Jessica's cancer. The second is is writing about my own you know, it's really a, a kind of series or sequence of, of love poems, you know, uh, maybe mature love poems or, or love poems written from the vantage of a greater awareness of mortality. But, you know, I, I, I know that the poems started coming to me from my subconscious because I was feeling so much love and so helpless to change the situation when Jessica was in treatment. So, you know, if nothing else, you know, it's a scary title for a book, uh, but it really is about love and, you know, resilience, uh, knock on wood, because we're lucky enough to be here five or six years later. You know, it's about love weathering a a really terrible period. We'll wrap up with Jessica St. Clair and Dan O'Brien after a quick break. When we return, we'll talk about the lessons they learned after overcoming cancer. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Congratulations, you've won a ticket to attend an exclusive opportunity in a relaxing environment with two lovers. <laughs> wow. Well, this sounds like a sort of proposition of sorts, but really it's an ad for our podcast. Wonderful. <laughs> It's a show we do here on Maximum Fun where we talk about things that we like and things that we're into. I'm Rachel McElroy, and you just heard Griffin McElroy, and we are excited for you to join us as we talk about movies and music and books. Things like sneezing or the idea of rain. (laughs) (laughs) Can you get news or information you can use? Absolutely you cannot, because we're here to talk to you about pumpernickel bread. You can find new episodes on Wednesdays. So catch, catch the wave! Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Dan O'Brien and Jessica St. Clair. Jessica is an actor and writer who has performed on Avenue 5, The Goldbergs, and Playing House. Dan, her husband, is a poet and playwright. His latest collection of poems looks back on the year and a half he and Jessica spent fighting cancer. It's called Our Cancers. Let's get back into our conversation. Dan, the ink had barely dried on the the book of Jessica's cancer treatment when you were diagnosed with cancer. When that happened, did the two of you feel like your, you know, your energy had gone into Jessica's treatment and there wasn't more left in there or did you feel like we know how to beat this send me back in there you know i think at different times we felt we felt both you know i I think at first was just a sense of shock and the absurdity of the situation i had put off investigating some symptoms because i thought what are the chances that while jessica is being treated for cancer that i would also need treatment for cancer and so, you know, partly I just couldn't believe that this was happening at the same time. I mean, it was the last day of it was her final infusion of chemotherapy. I was in the chair. Was the day that I was diagnosed. Yeah. And in the same building. So Jessica was literally, you know, hobbling down the, the hallway with her IV of chemotherapy to come to my doctor's office to deliver the verdicts of what we were dealing with in my case. So... You know, she would go on to still have some radiation treatment, but it was almost a perfect uh, segue uh, from one to the other. And that was shocking, too. It wasn't, you know, it'd be one thing if six months later I was diagnosed or a year later. It was, you know, essentially concurrent because I should have been in treatment for six months, a year beforehand. So, no, at first I think it was a lot of shock. It was the book of Job. It was a feeling of, you know, how, how can this keep, how can this go on? How can this continue like this? Uh, but then I know from my perspective, and, I, and I'll never get over this sense of deep gratitude to Jessica. I mean, right away, she was able to be my guide. You know, uh, her treatment, of course, wouldn't be exactly the same. But, you know, she had been down this road six months that I was now starting down. My treatment would last even longer, about nine months. And uh she was able to 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 teach me, to coach me, to reassure me. Of course, there are many times where we were both overwhelmed and we weren't helping each other and fighting and you know all those things that that anybody would would do. But you know, I think I think we we were able to to use the experience to our advantage. Yeah, I think 
something um we had Julia Louis Dreyfus on the deep dive and she she went through breast cancer after me and we sort of went through I went through it with her but she was saying I was saying if you can feel so lonely when you have cancer cuz especially when you're young nobody else around you has it and so you feel like you're the uh, I always used to say I'm like the loneliest unicorn like nobody else understands what I'm going through and so even though Dan was there for me you know, 24 seven while I was going through it, I felt really lonely. And then when Dan got it, it was like I could, he understood what I had been through. And then I understood what he had been through was going through as a caretaker, because that role is equally intense and lonely and terrifying. And it requires a very specific set of skills, you know, And you have to summon courage um, when you don't feel like you have it. So it felt in a way like even though it was bananas and I kept saying it was like a People magazine moment, like this, this is crazy. This doesn't happen to anybody. It felt like we would be equal at the end of it. We would understand each other in a way that if we hadn't both gone through it, I almost felt like one person could have felt separate for the rest of their lives. Jessica, you sold pretty hard uh, the benefits of cancer. (laughs) Um, in our conversation. Is this, is this whole podcast just one big commercial for cancer? This is actually a PBS pledge special. (laughs) A pro cancer. Yeah. But you have, so, so you have talked about the ways in which cancer has, and the experience of facing death did the things that we would like that experience to do, which is to say, clarified your relationships in your life, you know, it made you savor every flower you see and so forth. Do you like have to put a three by five card up on your bedroom door so that when you head out to make breakfast, you remember that that's what you learned from this experience? Oh my God. I forget it all the, almost every day. I mean, it's, it's so easy to forget and to go back to your old dumb ways. And um, yeah, I, I really, um, when I find myself, you know, even just we came to London and it was raining every day and I was like, Ugh! I just started to like get real cranky and down. And, you know, I do have to shock myself and remember like, what the f- are you doing? Or like if Dan and I start fighting about something stupid, I'm like, remember how much you loved him? You know, <laughs> like let's, Past tense. Past tense. Loved him. Still do. No, I mean, I'll say that when when I first noticed some of my old thoughts and patterns coming back, I was depressed. You know, in terms of not prioritizing the way I was during treatment and when I was thinking about what was at risk. Um, But, you know, I also recognized it as evidence of the fact that I was healing and becoming a bit more of like, a, you know, a, a normal person yeah. who's going to have the same anxieties, same ego, you know, a lot of the same things that we all deal with. So it's impossible to live in a kind of, it's impossible to live on the cliff your entire life, you know. But, I, you know, think, writing about it for me, Jessica creating, you know, and doing podcasts that deal with it, uh, doing this, this podcast, you know, these are ways that we remind ourselves, too, uh, of what we've been through and and what what it means what you know why it matters to us yeah i think the 
I think the biggest thing that's changed for me is like, I don't really put on, I used to be really good at faking it to everybody. Like I would just kind of chameleon in a room and put on a show. And as a comedian, I could be very distanced from who I really was. Um, And that felt really good to me. But now it's like, I guess the experience just fully integrated those who I am. So I can only sort of be myself, which is for better or for worse, you know, because when someone doesn't like you, well, they just don't like you. (laughs) You know, that's just, but there is, there is a kind of self love that, that has come, you know, that I, that I'm, that doesn't really leave me, you know, I don't, you know, certainly get as rattled by career stuff anymore. You know, sometimes I wish I, I, I think I should care more. You know, that that's the hardest part is to go like, wait, well, you can't say it to everything because you should care about something. And it's like, but I mean, you know, like if I had my way, like Lennon always says, like, you keep talking about wanting to like buy a farmhouse in Tuscany. Like it's very hurtful, you know, because we're supposed to be writing something, (laughs) you know, but, um, but yeah, I find like at, at cocktail parties, I almost immediately get very deep with somebody now, you know, I don't have time for small talk. Yeah. I don't know. That's, that's sort of how I've changed. Mm-hmm. Well, Dana, Jessica, I sure appreciate you taking all this time to be on bullseye. It's really nice to get to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for, for having us. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Jesse. You have a way of making people feel safe to like share their, their true selves. And that is partially due to your mustache. I think the calming, the calming, um, sound of your mustache bristling against your uh, your upper lip but also it's because you know you just have a gift to let people be them so thank you for having us thank you it's something i learned from my mentor sam elliott <laughs> Jessica St. Clair and Dan O'Brien. Dan's collection of poems is called Our Cancers. It's available now from your local bookstore. If you haven't seen Jessica's show, Playing House, you're in for a treat. Really wonderful. One of my favorite shows of recent years. You can watch it on demand through Amazon, Apple, or Google Play. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where today temperatures finally dropped, if briefly, below 80, and I immediately donned blue jeans. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson, producer Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffitt. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Thanks to Max Fund producer Christian Duenas for cutting together that Buddy Guy segment on this week's show, and to Jack Allen for recording Dan and Jessica in London. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it with us. Always very grateful to them for that kindness. You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.